Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. On today's episode, my guest is Eric Zimmer, the host of the award-winning podcast, The One You Feed. Eric is a behavior coach, spiritual director, and someone inspired by the quest for greater understanding of how our minds work and how to intentionally create the lives we want to live. In the conversation, Eric and I discuss how to integrate practical wisdom, discernment in daily life, the wisdom of community, the meaning of emptiness, the wisdom of action, and so much more. As you'll hear in the episode, I'm a longtime listener and fan of the One You Feed podcast. If you're looking for a great podcast, I highly recommend the One You Feed. All right, without any further delay, please welcome the wise and gracious Eric Zimmer. We generally do a wrap-up question around what is is wisdom and i thought maybe we could start there since you're uh second time coming back on the show here how do you think about or define you know wisdom in daily life today it's such a good question i think i don't remember what i said last time so um i can't i can't repeat it uh you know i think about wisdom as being able to see as close to the truth of reality as possible and then actually be able to implement that into our day-to-day life for that to actually influence how we act for that to be able to weigh in in moments of our lives where we're able to reflect and think and adjust and change and then act as use uh, we could use the word wisely as possible but we could use other words we could use words like act as skillfully as possible act as um i mean i would say kindly as possible as uh ethically as possible i mean i think there's lots of different ways but for me it's really about seeing things clearly now i think as humans we are always biased we're never going to get completely away from bias without perhaps unless we talk about like true uh, like enlightenment, maybe in that case, maybe. Um, but we have biases, but being able to know that they're there, being able to then say, what are other ways that are looking to, of looking at this? What's a bigger, bigger perspective? Um, and then being able to translate that into actual action. You know, wisdom is, is, uh, it's not as valuable if it's something that I only have in, in retrospect or something that I only have when I sit down to write a blog post or, you know, something I only have after a couple drinks shooting the, you know, I don't drink, but shooting the, you know, what at the bar with people or whatever. Like for me, it has to impact life, my life and the people around me. And that's a great transition to really what I'm most curious about and would love to chat about is that second part, there seems to be a huge gap between being able to 
put some words to something, to define it, and then integrate it in our in our daily lives. Um, and I, I want to talk to you a little bit about discernment and contemplation, if you will. Mm-hmm. I, I think about um, this definition that the Stoics talk about for for wisdom, and I know you've um, a, a while back you've you've done a, a few episodes on Stoicism mm-hmm. as well, and it's it's very simple: knowing what is good, knowing what is bad, knowing what is indifferent. <laughs> simple to say, but then it's like there's a lot of discerning and contemplation yes. in there to know the difference on each of those. How do you think about? discernment or contemplation or, or, you know, whatever word you would maybe use as you navigate life. It's challenging. I mean, I think what you just said in in principle sounds really easy. Know what's good, know what's bad, you know, know what's indifferent. I'll give you an example from my own life. Um, My mother is not well. Okay. And so she needs a certain amount of care. If she had her way, I would spend every hour of every day with my mother, right? I, that's what my life would be, right? That's not what I want my life to be. And so I'm trying, I'm always asking myself, like, what's right? What is the right thing to do? What I want is somebody to come out of the sky and say, Eric, if you spend two hours a week with your mother and you take her to all your doctor's appointments, you're a good guy. <laughs> but that doesn't exist. Because the answer that's right for me might be very different than the answer that's right for you. That might be very different for the answer that's right for my partner. So discernment to me is, A, it takes a lot of thinking. And I also think discernment happens really well in community. And what I mean by that is that the more people I talk to about it, oftentimes if I'm if I'm also in touch with my inner reality, my inner truth as much as possible, then talking with other people is going to shine the, that light around inside me in different ways. And I might be able to discover what seems to be the best answer for now. Now, if I'm not in touch with my inner uh, truth to some degree, talking to lots of different people might just make me all the more confused, right? So, so there, there is something to, you know, it can't be all external influence, and it can't be all internal influence to me. For me, it's when there's two come together where I'm getting some, yeah, I'm getting input from other people that I admire, that I respect, who've got different perspectives than me. And I'm bringing my own sense of what matters to me and what my values are. And those things come together. Um, but even with all that, I think there's often a lot of time where the best we often get is this is the this is the best answer I can come up with. Is it the right answer? I don't know. I don't think there such a thing exists. And sometimes just knowing that that answer doesn't exist in a true, like, in a in a, like I said, like there's not an, uh, three hours a week that that answer doesn't exist allows us to relax a little bit and try and go what's right for us. But for me, that's an ongoing living question, you know, that, that, that I wrestle with. And I think that when we really talk about wisdom, um, it's with the hard things. You know, I'm a huge fan of the serenity prayer, right? God grant me the serenity to, uh, you know, accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, the wisdom to know the difference, right? And people usually set this up as a straw man. Like, well, you know, I, I can't change the weather, but I could change my clothes. And, you know, and you're like, yeah, but 
most of life, it's that wisdom part that's so hard. It's like, what is the wisdom? How do I know the difference? And it takes, I think it takes deep thought. And as I said, discernment for me is a community practice. I love that. And I have to say, speaking of community, I went through your spiritual habits program um, a while back. And one of my favorite parts of it that I thought had so much wisdom was in between the lectures that, if I remember correctly, happened on the weekend, Mm -hmm. there was a small group meetup with other people that were going through the program. And now it connects with what you were talking about of seeing reality, being able to connect with a group of people that listen to um, a the same talk to be able to get these different perspectives and and maybe see a a, a broader and and clearer picture. Um, how do you th- how do you think about that in terms of community? You know how do we how do we find a community to to see reality like when it comes to this searching for wisdom yeah <laughs> you know yeah. not not going through necessarily the spiritual habits program but i i highly recommend but just everyday life as we're walking the path how can we keep community in mind i guess i think it's i think it's challenging because i think we one of the things i've learned by trying to offer community to people is that lots of people say they want community but then when the opportunity for community arises, they're a little less willing to commit. And I don't mean that as a negative on anyone. We have a lot of pressures on us, right? We all are busy and we have so many things that we can do. And community takes effort and it takes energy and it takes commitment. And, you know, a lot of times maybe we don't have that. So the the program you're talking about was Wednesday nights. I tried to put the people in the spiritual habits program together with other people in their time zone, 7 p.m. Well, after a long day at work and getting the kids fed, seven o'clock comes around, you may be a little bit worn out. And the natural inclination, and I feel this all the time, the natural inclination is to just retreat. Let me go sit in front of the TV. Let me go sit in front of a novel. Let me, whatever my way of decompressing is, let me go do that. And so I find myself having to sort of push myself sort of consistently into, all right, let, let me go to the thing that I know I think is, is going to be more nourishing. So I think that's one is that it just takes effort for community. Um, there's a second uh, spiritual habits program. It's a small group. It's, a, it's only 10 people that I create. And one of the modules is all about how we create community. And one of the really interesting things as I created that module and I learned is I, I did a lot of reading on the research of how people build connection, particularly as adults. And what, what it turns out is that we need a lot of time together before we start to feel connection. So what happens with a lot of people, and this has happened to me many times in my life, is I'm like, okay, there's, let's just say there's this local Buddhist group. And I, 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 I like a lot of Buddhist type stuff. I'm influenced by it. So I go to it. And I leave and I'm like, well, I didn't feel connected to any of those people. And I go, well, that must not be the place for me. Mm. What the research says is I might have to go to that thing 30 times. <laughs> before the connection really becomes apparent. It's not that it's not there. It's that it takes time and it takes development. And that, we don't like that, right? We don't, we don't have a tendency to do that. And a lot of our engagements when people try and build community are these sort of very short-term 
engagements. So the Spiritual Habits Group Program mm-hmm. has been really interesting because everybody has a chance to be part of a small group. And I don't know what happened with your small group. Some small groups have been meeting for years, right? They, they met on Wednesdays. They liked it. When the program ended, they said, let's keep in touch. They keep in touch. And it just keeps building and deepening. And others just don't right? The, the connection doesn't happen. The click doesn't happen. Maybe there's what, for whatever reason, and, and we can't control that. But what I do know is the people who keep meeting, those connections keep deepening. So, you know, how do I think about community? I think it, it has to be something we value. It has to be something we intentionally seek out. And it has to be something that we commit to in an ongoing way to give ourselves the best chance. That's not to say like you keep going to a place that's not the right fit for you. It's just that almost always the very first few times we go somewhere, it will not feel like the right fit. Because when we go into group, one of two things tends to happen with most of us, right? It's a situation that causes a little bit of anxiety. And we, and and as, as hierarchical primate type animals we're trying to figure out how do i fit here do i you know and so we're either doing one of two things and often oscillating between the two one is putting ourselves down thinking i'm not good enough to be here or the other is we're putting the other people around us down and we're going ah they're not that great i don't really like them they're not my people right and we oscillate between those two and those things block us from from connection so um i think it's it's a real challenge and our culture just doesn't emphasize it and the frameworks aren't there in the way they used to be you really have to create them large you have to be very intentional about creating them whereas i think 50 or 100 years ago the the frameworks were there to make it easier that seems to be such an important point it's um it's bringing up something i i read a year or two ago I'm, i'm not super familiar with with buddhist texts and things like that but um around friendship being much of the of the spiritual path yeah what what do you think i don't i'm thinking of myself it's like we tend to think of maybe acquaintances or maybe making new friendships new connections instead of some sort of long-term investing in deep Mm. relationships and connections it's a really good question, and it's one that I think about actually a lot because I have a lot of long-term friendships that have been around 30 years plus at this point. Um, and some of those friends, I mean, they're special to me because of the length of time. But in some ways, those people and I are, are different people, and I don't know if we met today if we'd really be friends. Mm-hmm. So, and, and, you know, then there's this insight that, you know, that, that says you're, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And there are things about that phrase that I don't love, but I think it holds a kernel of truth to it also. Right. And so I often with you, and I'm sort of thinking like, well, I've got these long-term friendships that are really good, but I don't know that they feed this other part of me. So I want friendships that do, but then those friendships are newer and they don't feel as deep or as, as intimate. And so for me, it's a little bit of a balance. It's like, well, those, those long-term friendships are important. I want to commit to them. I want to deepen them. They've been around a long time. There's something about somebody you've been friends with for 30 years that you simply don't replicate with somebody you've been friends with for three months. Mm-hmm. However, there are people I meet that uh, you know, I do this show and I'll have a conversation with somebody and I'll be like, that person, wow, all right, 
you know, like, let's talk more often. There's an immediate sense of connection. There's an immediate sort of intimacy. Um, so I think it's a, a little of, you know, for me, it's a little of both. It's nourishing uh, and, and staying committed to the relationships that I have that matter to me, but also saying, you know what, there, there are some areas that I would like uh, friendship that is not being met right now. And, and it's okay to invest in that way. Also, I think people often get into an all or nothing sort of situation, they'll jettison everything from the past, mm. or they'll only commit to things from the past. And time is difficult, right? We only have limited time. So we have to be very uh, uh, judicious in how we spend it. So these are not easy questions. But that's kind of how I think about it. I've heard you in one of your spiritual habits is the middle way, which I think is so important and it comes up in, in everything. Like back to this definition of, of wisdom, knowing the good, the Stoics talk about virtue, knowing the bad, vice. The wisdom to know the difference is still very difficult because take the virtue of courage, for example, it's very difficult to know that right amount of courage in how we find the middle way. So how do you, maybe if you could speak a little bit about the middle way and, and how you attempt to put it into practice in daily life. Sure. Uh, I think what you're saying there is we would say courage is somewhere that midpoint between being uh, foolhardy and rash on one hand, right? overly risky and being a coward on the other hand. So it's somewhere in between. So where is that in between? And, and that is a difficult question. I think one of the ways it's worth thinking about the middle way is trying to look, depending on what you're looking at, what situation you're looking at is to try and understand where you naturally lean. So I find this in, in coaching work that I do with people, right? There are some people that if, if we were to be talking about, um, courage, right? For some people, I might need to be pushing them towards having more courage, right? That might be the direction they need to go. For other people, I might be saying like, hey, let's turn that down a little bit. Like we need to, we want to turn down your, your, your rashness, your risk taking, right? Um, there's a spiritual teacher, Ajahn Chah, who once said, you know, uh, someone asked him, why do you teach? I hear you give teachings completely different sometimes. And he said, well, if the person I'm talking to is walking along the road on the far right side and is about to fall in a ditch to the right, I push him to the left. If a person walking along the road is on the left about to fall in, I push him to the right. Thus, and so we need to do this for ourselves. You know, where is my tendency? You know, is my tendency to be way too hard on myself and push myself way too hard? Or is my tendency to just give up and, and not, not keep trying? If I know where my tendency is, then that's the first place I would be looking as I'm trying to figure out a situation. So if we go back to my situation with my mom, is my tendency to take on more responsibility than is normally my own, than I should? Or is it to take on less? And, and, and even that is difficult to figure out. But oftentimes, particularly by the time you get to be older, you have some sense of, you know, where you where you tend to fall. And so I think knowing ourselves is really important, particularly as we hear advice about do this, do that, you should be more like this, you should be more like that. Well, not for everybody, right? You need to know your tendencies. You need to know, are you on the excess or deficit side of any given trait normally? 
and and that at least will give you a jumping off point to say, all right, well, in the past, here's where I've tended to either fall short or, or try too much. Is that the case here? Um, and then often, again, back to this idea, people around us often know. If we have people we trust and have known us for a while, they often can help see some of that in us that's hard for us to see ourselves. But I agree. I think that, I mean, I love, I love stoicism. I love Buddhism. I love philosophy. I love psychology. But what I often find is that people who write that stuff um, by the very nature of having to write it and put it into a book and codify it, they oversimplify it because mm. you couldn't not, right? And life just, if it's anything, it's not, it, it tends to not be simple when it comes to what I would consider um, ethical type decisions, you know, like what's the right or wrong thing to do? You know, it's the class, you know, this is the this is a, another a little bit of a straw man because it's kind of easy to see. But it's like, well, if if the truth is, you know, if the if the rule is you should never lie. Okay, that seems like good wisdom. But what if I'm, you know, what if you were in World War II and you're hiding, you know, a Jewish family from the Nazis and you're lying to the Nazis? Is that right or wrong? Well, I think most of us would pretty clearly go, well, it's okay in that case. But and again, that's that's an obvious and easier situation. But a lot of things fall into that category. You just can't apply a simple rule to it and go, this always applies. Uh, I wish you could, but life tends to be more yeah. nuanced than that. Yeah, definitely. I have a question. Maybe we could stay with um, courage as an, as an example mm-hmm. of navigating the inner voice or... Sometimes I, I think about it as, as voices. Mm-hmm. Um, if we're navigating this path of, of courage, there might be a particular voice that is identifying all sorts of danger, you know, fear in mind, survival in mind. And then uh, another voice that is maybe more encouraging and encouraging you to act. Mm-hmm. How do we make sense of of that in how might mindfulness in a in a particular practice or or contemplation you know what are some tools that can uh maybe help us yeah i think that that's really a great question because i often hear people say something like well just follow your intuition follow your gut your gut knows your intuition knows. I'm like, well, I'm not sure that's true. I mean, or I'm not saying that it's not true, but oftentimes our most damaged parts of ourselves speak the loudest and they seem very persuasive. You know, I was a heroin addict for years and I can tell you that my voice that told me I should do heroin felt incredibly authentic. <laughs> and very intuitive and it had a lot of power behind it it also turned out to be the dead wrong thing for me right and so when we're when we have patterns that are that are deeply ingrained in us that are not good they feel very natural so if you're just like well just trust your gut you can be very led astray so then the question because well if i don't trust my gut what do i trust right and so i think it's a you use the word mindfulness, and I think there's, there's an important piece of that. And it's to use mindfulness in this sense. What is my mind full of? What all is going on in here? 
what are all the competing voices and priorities? Let me see if I can just even get clear on what that is. Mm. So I think that's one thing. I think the other thing is it's important to spend time reflecting on what matters to us the most what feels like the clearest articulation of our values what what is really important to us so that we have something that we can check in with and go all right when i was in a really good place i went i you know i i spent i spent a bunch of time really thinking deeply from not a reactive place not from a scared place from the what I call the, the wisest, truest part of myself, like, you know, the best I could find with that. And again, there's no that to say that that's a thing that is, stands apart from the rest of us is a little bit, I, I don't love the phrase, but I think it points us towards something. And I think we can all understand it. There are times that we are a little bit more like, okay, I think I see what's important. I think I see what matters. And I'm not doing that out of a place of reaction. I'm not doing that out of a place of being tired. I'm not doing that when I'm hungry. I'm not doing that. I'm doing that from a a place of greater perspective. So then I've done that work a little bit and I have some sense. And then when I get sort of caught up in the in the maelstrom of my own mind with all these competing things, I have something that I've looked at before and I've gone, this is what the best version of me would, would thinks and believes it. Now the best version of me may not be online right this minute. Right. But I, I have a reference point and that reference point isn't going to give me the answer. I love Stephen Covey talks about this really well in the seven habits of highly effective people. And he, what he says is we don't need a map. We need a compass. And the reason he says that is because we can't have a map. Reality is changing too quickly. There are too many different situations. Mm. You can't have a map, but you can't have a compass, you know, and our compass can in these moments can point us in the right direction. But that means we have to have done some of the work to think about what matters to us in times where we're not under great degrees of stress or pressure because under stress and pressure, we're not going to get the best version of ourselves typically. Now that voice may still be in there, but there's going to be lots of other voices. And so again, if I were to sort of summarize that, I would say if we've done some of the work to really get clear on our values and what matters to us, so we've got a compass, a reference point, then when we get ourselves in a situation where we're feeling really unsure and there's a lot of pressure, we, we then have enough mindfulness to go, what all is happening in here? What are the competing voices? And which of those voices aligns best with this, this view I've laid out, with this wiser, truer self I've tried to capture? And, and then we make the best decision we can based on that. Um, but I think that, that's the best way I, I know how to think through it and how I sort of do it for myself. Um, because, yeah, the, the version of us that shows up in moment-to-moment life is not often the best version of ourselves, right? The best version of me can yeah. sort of, I like to think of it as sort of sitting up on a hilltop and can survey the whole scene, right? But then moment to moment, like I said, I get tired, I get hungry, I get irritated, I get scared, I get, you know, I don't want that self running the show. I want the higher self's wisdom to be what I, what I try and live by. That best version of yourself seems to be such an important idea to believe in. I think of 
you know, the different wisdom traditions like Buddhism, this Buddha nature. Um, I mean, it seems like all wisdom traditions have this belief or this idea that there is an inner goodness, you know, inherent type of thing that can be difficult to believe for some, you know, how do we believe in that best version of ourselves? If maybe we're not, not feeling so much, if there's anybody Mm -hmm. listening. And I mean, I have so much compassion for some of these people that maybe are asking difficult questions, asking some of these similar questions, but their answers are coming up and leading people to go down a path of, you know, harming society and and things like that. Yeah. And I'd love to stay away from the philosophical discussion of whether at heart we're good or at heart we're bad. It's why I've got the parable that I use for my show, right? Because I believe the reality is we've all got it all inside of us, right? We all have the seeds of great kindness and great hate in us, I think, right? That just seems to be the, the nature. So, One of the things that can be helpful for me often is to look back maybe and look to look at a child, you know, look at a three or four year old and sure they get selfish and they, they have, you know, they have tantrums and they, but, but there's a lot of goodness and kindness and love and it's just naturally sort of there to some degree. Right. And so then I can go, well, okay, I had that at one point. I was that at one point. And then, you know, maybe all sorts of things have happened that have obscured that, but it, it was there. Um, and I think the other thing is to say, I'm looking for the best version of myself, not the best version of you, not the best version of Jesus Christ, not the best version of the Buddha, the best version of me. What's the best part of me? What would that, you know, if I, if I were to just be able to sort of flash to my best, strongest moments, let me just think about a time in the past where I felt most strong and capable and, and embodied and whole. What would that version of me think about this situation? But there are other ways at this, right? Like there's one exercise that we do in the second spiritual habits course, and I got it from the, uh, there's a there's a psychology called acceptance and commitment therapy, and it, I I believe it's an extraordinarily wise uh, psychotherapy. And the founder Stephen C Hayes has been on the show a couple times. And when I told him I was building a course where we examined values, I said like if you could pick one activity that people could do, what might you give them? And he gave an activity called picking a guide, and it basically says imagine you know pick a domain in your life that you feel challenged in and, and pick the best person out there that you can think of in that space, the person you would want to be in that space. And then imagine what would they do? Imagine what advice they would give you. Imagine how they would say to respond, right? That helps access for ourselves when we feel blocked in ourselves. It helps us to go, Oh, okay well, this is the person I would pick and here's what they might do, how they might respond, what they might do. And there's more to that exercise than that. There's some more visualization than, than that, but that's the core of it. So that's another way if I'm like, I can't find it in myself. It just doesn't feel like it's there. Okay, who do I admire and why? 
What is it about them that I admire and what might they do? That's another way of getting to sort of the wiser, truer version of ourselves as we can often see it in others easier. I love it. And uh, I have to say the, the Liberated Mind by, by Stephen Hayes was how I found your podcast. Oh, okay. I absolutely love that book. And that was the very first episode uh, I've listened to and been listening ever, ever since. Yeah. Great book. He's a giant, I think. I mean, there, there, are, there are a number of people who I think have made profound contributions to human thought over the years. And I think for our generation, he's one of them. I, I want to ask this question around emptiness. I don't exactly know how to, uh, <laughs> how to ask it, but uh, it seems to be specifically emptiness in the way of words when it comes to navigating our, our inner voice and, and making wise decisions. It seems to be an important point. So let me read something I read in, in Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, and I would love if you could unpack it a, a bit if possible. It says, we empty ideas of big or small, good or bad from our experience, because the measurement that we use is usually based on the self. When we say good or bad, the scale is yourself. Could you unpack and, and maybe speak to how you think about emptiness, helpful, not helpful? Emptiness is a term that has a, um, a meaning within the Buddhist tradition, primarily. And it's one that has, is, is, even within the Buddhist tradition, is defined very differently depending on whether you're in Zen Buddhism or, or other forms of Buddhism, some of which don't use the term at all. And even within there, you could ask two Zen teachers and you might get two different answers about what we're, what we're looking at here. So I want to be clear that this is, we're, this is a little bit of an arcane tool. It's very fundamental, particularly to Zen. And Emptiness is basically pointing at, I've heard it described a, a couple of different ways, and I'll just give you a couple of the definitions that I like for it. One way of thinking of emptiness is it is the pure possibility of everything before it actually takes form. So it is the generative thing that everything comes out of. It's pure, pure possibility. That's one way of thinking of it. Another way I've heard it described is it's everything all at once. It's just everything before we start chopping it up and dividing it, right? Our minds are always chopping things up and dividing me and you good and bad tree and bird and car and plane. There's a way of viewing reality where that stuff, where those divisions, which we put on them don't exist. And this is sort of what, in a, particularly in a Zen sense, we would talk about as, as achieving some degree of that we would call Kensho in Zen, another roughly translated as enlightenment, which is where we have a view of the world in which the self is not central. I am not the center point. The way all of us view the world is we are the center, everything orbits around us. But if you were suddenly to be, just pretend there was a God, the creator of everything, you would have a completely different view of the world. It would look completely different. Um, emptiness is also uh, can be described as, you know, the way things are before we put our 
our concepts and ideas on them. So is it an, is it a helpful term? I don't know. I think it's a helpful term if what you're after is realizing what I would call the direct nature of reality, then yes, I think it's actually a very useful term and has some things for that. Is it a useful term in contemplating how often I should visit my mother? I don't know that it is. Because the other thing that a thing I love about Zen is Zen talks about two realms that, that we all live in, that we all work in. There's one which is the absolute realm. And that's kind of where emptiness functions. And it says there's, a, there's this unbroken unity of, uh, I'm using words for something that you can't put into words, but there's an unbroken unity of everything. The God's eye view of the world, everything all at once, that's there. That's the, that's the absolute. But we also live in a relative world. We live in a relative world where I have a mother, right? I don't have every mother. I have my mother right? And my mother needs me to take care of her because she doesn't have every son. She has this son and this. And, and so we live in a relative world too, where we also have to make decisions and we have to think about what is the right thing to do. And I don't know often that terms like emptiness and, and enlightenment necessarily help there. They can, they can inform it, but I, what I love about Zen and the thing that has drawn me to it even more deeply over the years is it says these things are, uh, th- there's a phrase that we, we recite the Heart Sutra. We say emptiness is form, form is emptiness. These things, this relative and absolute, they are, they are here. You can't see what I'm doing, your listeners, but I'm putting my hands together in an intermeshed way. So I, for me, I think I have to try and live I'm trying to cultivate both those worlds. I'm trying to cultivate a, uh, a a spiritual growth perspective that does try and see the deeper nature of reality, does try and see emptiness, does try and see unity, does. And I've had experiences of that where I've seen that to be true. But I can't, you know, forget about the relative world. You know, in, in Zen they would call if you were just to suddenly be like talking about emptiness all the time and forget to take care of your mother, they would call it Zen sickness, right? Like you were. <laughs> You were sort of missing part of the point here. So I don't know if that's helpful, but. No, I, I think it is. Um, how about the this idea of just good and bad? I, I've heard you talk about thoughts and emotions. And I may butcher this, but I, I think I've heard you suggest that, you know, maybe thought then emotion or if not maybe they're traveling in the in the same boat um <laughs> but in the way of say good or good or bad or any sort of label yeah you know it seems like once we take on that particular view of bad or you know exchange that for anything else then there's an emotion that comes at least in my experience that's how you know sometimes it can feel for me it it does seem like it's um helpful to at least maybe loosen our grip on on the labels of of categorizing you know our experiences and things like that any thoughts 
Yeah, well, there's 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 three or four questions probably embedded in there, uh, which <laughs> yeah. makes it a great question. But um, I mean, the first is thoughts and emotions, emotions and thoughts, right? You know, I I early on with the show, I used to just ask: Do thoughts cause emotions, or do emotions cause thoughts? And and the answer very often, some person might argue for one or the other, and then what I realized is people who I admire went, "Well, um, it could go both ways," and. More recently, I've even started, I love the analogy you just used that they, they you know, they're in a boat and they travel together because what you'll notice if you look at your own experiences, you almost never get one without the other. You almost never have thoughts without emotions or emotions without thoughts. They co-arise to use another Buddhist type term, right? They co-arise with each other. And I think they're certainly bi-directional. You know, I can have a thought. If you told me right now that my podcast was going to shut down next week and I was going to go broke, I would have an emotion. Like I would just, you know, and there are days that I wake up before I've had a single thought and I feel an emotional tone present. So it seems to me they're certainly bi-directional and they, they co-arise and are they even separate things? I'm not sure. You know, that that's so, so, Setting that aside, now we're on to good and bad. And I think there's two ways to think about good and bad. One is to think about good and bad in our own experience. And then the second is to think about good and bad in a moral or ethical sense. So I'm going to start with our own experience. We have a tendency to label things as good or bad in our own experience based on very often how they feel in the moment. And that is while and while uh, things do feel good or bad, they may not be in the broader perspective either good or bad. So, for example, some some very simple examples, right? I'm on my exercise bike over there. I'm pedaling really hard, and it doesn't feel good. It feels bad, <laughs> but I know it's good for me, right? So there's a very obvious like, well, okay, what well, is it good or bad? I don't know. You know, but my in, in this exact moment, it feels bad, but I know it's good. Right. So there's a very simple example. More broadly, right. You could look at experiences in life that happen. Uh, I got uh, I, I founded a solar energy company and I poured my life into it for five years. It was my baby and it failed. I had to shut it down. Um, some of the reasons it failed were my fault. Some of them were entirely beyond my control. Shut it down. Broken heart. If you'd asked me at that moment, is that good or bad? I would say this is unquestionably bad. <laughs> I mean, how, what other answer is there, right? But out of that, that difficult experience came this podcast and all the work I've done since, which I think at least now I look at and I go, well, I'm a much better fit to do this than I am to be the CEO of a solar energy company. Right. Not that that's not a rewarding job, but if you look at my natural skill set and where I'm happiest, like this was, this feels right. So that experience, was it good or bad? Well, I don't know. It appears good now with hindsight. And, you know, there's that old, uh, Taoist Chinese tale about the horse and the farmer, right? I told this in Spiritual Habits, right? And many, many of your listeners might have heard it. You know, there's a farmer and he uh, has a horse and it's the most valuable thing he owns and the horse runs away. And his neighbor comes over and goes, oh, I'm so sorry about your horse. This is terrible. Like you lost your most valuable possession. And the farmer says, well, who knows? Could be good, could be bad. And the neighbor thinks, okay, whatever, man, leaves. A couple days later, this horse comes back and it brings with it two beautiful stallions. 
And the neighbor comes over and goes, oh, man, you are so lucky. You're the luckiest guy in the world. I'm so jealous. Now you're so rich. And the farmer goes, well, could be good, could be bad. And the neighbor thinks, this guy's crazy. Then uh, a couple days later, his, his eldest son takes the horse out, one of the new stallions out. The, the horse bucks him. His son breaks his legs. Terrible injury. Won't be able to help with the harvest in the fall. And the neighbor comes over. You know what the neighbor says? He says, oh, I'm so sorry. And the farmer, of course, says, well, could be good, could be bad. And then a couple weeks later, the army comes through and they, they draft every able-bodied young man off to war, right? This story goes on and on. I, I could just keep adding verses to this story, right? We don't know what's good or bad in the moment. We tend to freeze something. This is bad. This is good. But we don't know, right? Because we don't know what comes next. We, 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 we only have our view of it. And so what I think can be really helpful is just to try and loosen up, particularly around the bad. When something bad has happened to us is to try and loosen up a little bit and just go, okay, this doesn't feel good. I don't like it. But I don't know what this is going to lead to. I don't know what's coming. You know, there's a cliche when one door closes, another door opens. And cliches tend to be cliches because there's some truth in them. But what that cliche leaves out very often, I think, is that when one door closes, the other doesn't open right away. And so now you're in a dark hallway. And that dark hallway can be scary and uh, you're uncertain. And, and so I often think our job is just to keep walking as best we can when something really bad has happened, keep walking with a little, keeping some of our mind open to like, well, something else could be coming. This could be, you know, the end of things are very often the beginnings of other things. And so not to shut down and, and deny how bad it feels when something ends, you know, that solar company ending was extraordinarily painful. I hope to not have to go through a pain, painful experience like that again. You doubt, I doubted everything about myself. And, in that difficult time, there was fertile ground for something beautiful to be born. So, and then the last level is uh, good and bad from an ethical perspective. And I may just leave that one alone for now, unless you want to go there, in which case I'm, I'm happy to try. But it's different layers of good and bad. No, I, I love it. I think that's so well said, Eric. And our, our time has flown by. I'm, I'm really grateful for you coming on to share your time and, and wisdom let me ask just one uh, wrap-up question, sure. if I could. Connected to that continuing to walk, I, I generally think of when it comes to this navigating the, the inner voice or, or voices, there's this quote from Van Gogh. It's like if you hear a voice inside you say you, you can't paint, then basically start painting and, <laughs> and that voice will be silenced. How do we – could you talk a little bit about – you know, just action, basically just getting our, our feet moving down that particular path. And then sure. we can always change course, I guess. Yeah, it, it's, um, you know, one of my favorite phrases, and, and I didn't make this up, but I don't have any idea who to attribute it to, um, is that sometimes you can't think your way into right action, you have to act your way into right thinking. So what that points to is that you know, sometimes we do just need to act even if we don't feel like it. And we act based on our best idea of what the next, you know, another phrase that I love, it comes from AA is do the next right thing. And I love that phrase because it really simplifies. It really simplifies. I can get caught up in all kinds of stuff. 
all right, I just lost my job and I'm in the dark hallway and I don't know what to do and I don't know what my career is. What's the next right thing? Oh, well, I do know that every morning I made a commitment that I'm going to try and, uh, you know, exercise for 30 minutes. Okay, that's the next right thing. It's why planning what we're going to do with our time is really important because planning is a bridge, right? It's a, a plan is often the way in which done right, it's, it's how we take our values and we, we put them into some sort of action. So for me, very often, this is why planning and having a plan is so important because then I can just go, all right, what's next on the plan? Because ideally, the wiser version of myself created that plan. And I'm going to trust that version of me, and I'm just going to take the action that's there. Now, that's easier to say than do, right? And it's not always that easy for a variety of reasons. It's why I've done behavior coaching with people for years is because it's a little bit more complicated than that. But at the end of the day, there is an element that says, look, what's the next right thing to do? bite off the smallest part of it that you possibly can and get started. You know, like that's kind of the, the, the thing. So my solar company's failed. I'm in despair. I don't know what's coming next, but I've made a commitment to exercise every day because I know that's good for my mental and emotional health, gives me more energy. And now it's time to do it, but I don't want to do it because I'm feeling really depressed about the whole situation. And, uh, all right, so what can I do? Well, if I'm riding my exercise bike here, you know, my trick is like, just get on your gym clothes and, and put your shoes on. That, that, okay, do that. Then I'm like, just get on the bike. You don't even have to ride it. Just get on the thing, right? And before I know it, I've done my 30-minute exercise, and I'm a little bit further along with what felt, with what was important to me today than I was before I started. And some days are like that. It's just like inch by inch. You know, we, we do the next right thing. And other days it's not that hard, ideally, you know, we, it doesn't take that much effort for me to do it, but there are days that it does. I love it. You have a real gift, Eric, for just getting extremely practical and clear at the same time. I, I, I really appreciate it. So this has been great. Where do you point uh, listeners interested in connecting and learning more about you? Yeah, you can just go to oneyoufeed.net. That's O-N-E-Y-O-U-F-E-E-D.net. Um, there, all the podcast episodes are linked there. I mean, I think that's, that's, my, that's my best work is the podcast. Um, but you can also find out about the one-on-one -on -one coaching. You can find out about the spiritual habits program and anything else that we have going on uh, is all there, oneyoufeed.net. All right, beautiful. And we'll link it in the show notes. Eric Zimmer, thank you so much for coming on In Search of Wisdom. Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. Until next time, be wise and be well.